Welcome to Smarter Markets, a free weekly podcast featuring stories from the entrepreneurs and icons of commodities, capital markets, and technology, ranting on the inadequacies of our systems and riffing on ideas for how to solve them. Together, we explore the questions, is capitalism in crisis, and will building smarter markets be the antidote? And now, here's your host, Eric Townsend. Welcome to the 11th episode of Smarter Markets, a weekly podcast that explores how financial markets could be redesigned and improved to better serve market participants and society as a whole. Smarter Markets is made possible by a grant from Abex Technologies. I'm your host, Eric Townsend. Dr. Ben Hunt, founder of EpsilonTheory.com, has been writing for years about narrative management and the ways that social media has been used to shape narratives in both financial markets and society more broadly. Ben joins me as this week's feature interview guest. We'll pick up where Kirsten Stewart and I left off last week by further discussing the role of social media in both finance and across society more broadly. Then move on to how financial markets no longer serve society the way they were intended to and what needs to be done to fix them. My interview with Epsilon Theory founder, Dr. Ben Hunt, is coming up next. And now, with this week's special guest, here's your host, Eric Townsend. Ben, thanks so much for joining me on Smarter Markets. I want to get to everything that's going on in the market with GameStop and and Wall Street Bets and all of that. But first, you've been writing about the manufacturing of narratives, including the use of social media to promote those narratives for what I think it's coming up on a decade now. Give us the high-level overview of what this whole narrative thing is that's going on and who's behind it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, the narrative thing. You're so right. You're so right, Eric. And I have been writing about it for for quite a while. By the way, thanks thanks for having me on the show. I I, I really appreciate it. So the the idea of narrative as it affects both politics and investing, as it affects markets – is the idea that the, the human animal is hardwired to respond to the messages we hear. And, you know, that's, that, that's not, I think, trying to tell anybody anything they don't already know. You know, we, we are social animals, after all, in the technical sense of the word. But what I write about and the, the research I've tried to do is to say, well, it's not, it's not just random how we are impacted by the words of other people, the things we read, the messages that we absorb in a given day. It's not random. There are rules to it. And what we see in politics today, what we see in markets today, is that we are, our behavior rather, is becoming more and more driven by these narratives, by the things that people say, by the things that people write. You know, I think there's just such a perfect example of this is the wake of the presidential election. On January 6th, we had this this event at the Capitol. And, you know, most Americans have very, very strong opinions about what happened on January 6th. Almost none of them actually read or personally listened to what the president said. They go by what their Twitter feed or their Facebook feed or, or whatever social media they're following told them that the president said. And of course, you've got this one polarized view that the president did nothing but but just encourage peaceful demonstration. And then another polarized view that says he's inciting insurrection and, and you know, calling for people to to, uh, you know, have hangings in the street. In reality, everybody seems to want to trust their social media rather than going straight to the source. Is this as simple as just different people with different politics having different perspectives? Or are there people who are in the business of driving and, and inventing these narratives and promoting them on social media? Well, it's it's the latter, of, of course, Eric, and, and one of those promoters being the former president of the United States. Frankly, every politician, this is something that politicians have known forever, is the power of narrative and effective politicians are good at creating those narratives. You know, you can you can count me among the people who did listen to what Trump had to say on, on not just the the morning of the sixth, but but other times as well. And and so, you know, my view is certainly that 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 absolutely 
he was creating a message that absolutely had the impact on behavior of of, of his followers that we saw on January 6th. So look, you, you, you ask if these things are intentionally created. Of course they are. They're intentionally created in the same way that all advertisement is intentionally created. Because look, that's what an advertisement is. It's trying to get you to change your behavior. It's not presenting the necessarily presenting the the actual views of the people make person or people making the ad, right? It's they are crafting the message because what they want to do is to get you to change your behavior, to buy more beer. You know, if you're watching a beer commercial on the on the Super Bowl, the difference there with advertisements is that we carve those out. We say, aha, this is an advertisement. The goal of this is to entertain me or to, you know, inform me, but to somehow get me to 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 change my behavior. It's it, it's very upfront in its in its commercial goals here. What is I'll say different and 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 I think bad about the creation of messages in our political and our vesting world is that it's not clearly set out as using words for effect rather than using words as an accurate representation of a viewpoint. It's not discourse, it's advertising. And that's something, like I say, that politicians have known forever. It's something that everyone is in on the act now. So central bankers know this now. CEOs know this now. Everybody knows this now, that the secret to success is to create an effective narrative that changes the viewer's or the listener's behavior in predictable ways. I think that in at least some of these cases, you know, in the case, as you said, of advertising, people know they're being advertised to. I think in these narratives, a lot of people never really see Correct. who's behind it. And, and uh, to Correct. my thinking, the, a perfect example of that is the big event that's happened in the market just in the last couple of weeks. And I should let our listeners know this uh, interview was pre-recorded, so it'll be almost a week by the time you hear this since we recorded it on Monday, the 1st of February. But Ben, what narrative is being sold right now goes like this. You know, there there's some fairly smart young folks, young men and women who, you know what they did? They don't have any background in finance. They're not experts in all this stuff. But they got together and they realized we could beat those stinking one percenters at their own game. <laughs> and what they did is they took down, not single-handedly, but multi-handedly by, by coming together and using the power of social media, they created a community of normal, hardworking, Main Street people who are not finance professionals, who were able by, by just brute force of coming together and working together to beat a hedge fund by squeezing it out of a short position, resulting in something like a 50% loss for one hedge fund. So one of those stinking one percenters got taken down, and it was we the people that did it, and it's victory for the people and death to the one percenters. I think it's a it's a nice story, isn't it? It is I a mean, nice story. I, I mean, but I, I got I got pretty excited there as you were telling it. Not going to lie. I actually kind of like the story because I think the one percenters, even though I guess you and I are probably among the one percenters, the one percenters kind of deserve it. But you know what? I think that story is a bunch of bunk. I don't think it's true. Do you think that that's really what's going on here with with GameStop and the the events and markets? No, no, not not at all. I. I tell you, though, Eric, I, I think that in one respect, nothing changed with the GameStop and Wall Street bets and the Reddit revolution, right, as, as, as you might read the, the narrative in the, in the New York Times or the, the, the Wall Street Journal. I, I don't think that anything changed in respect to how we as social animals find ourselves influenced by and changed by the words and the messages of people who are trying to steer us in a certain direction, right? So all of this <laughs> is, is being as done more by other hedge funds that are trying to stick it to Melvin Capital and the, 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 the guys who had the short positions on GameStop. You know, the efforts to, to game you, to play you, they don't stop. 
and nothing here changed this this narrative of democratization of markets and there are other aspects you see this as well when you talk about SPACs investing in SPACs but also the as you're talking about the 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 Reddit issue it's it's just another story it's another story designed to make I won't call them one percenters I'll call them a one tenth of one percenters even more wealthy right it's part of their game in that respect nothing changed. But I'll tell you in another respect, I think everything changed with the Reddit and the, the, the GameStop and what happened there. You know what I think changed, Eric? I think what changed is that everyone kind of saw behind the curtain. What they saw was, wait a second, we're seeing this stock, GameStop. It's a crappy real world business. And I don't know if it's worth you know $2 a share. Maybe it should be worth $18 a share or $19 a share or whatever you know, it got up to in December, but $400 a share, you know, today this thing is trading at like 225, 250, $250 a share. There's nothing here that's based on fundamentals. Right. And, and I think what everybody realized last week was, huh? So this is how stocks go up and down. You know, we, we really did see behind the curtain of the wizard of Oz and say, well, what, it's not fundamentals? You mean it's things like short squeezes and, you know, options and gamma and, and, and this sort of stuff? The story about it, that's what drives a stock? And I think for, for so many people, it was this, this, this realization, kind of an emperor's new clothes moment, to say, I think it's just stories all along. And, and and that to me is the the real potential change where I, I do think so much is changing as a result, but the underlying, <laughs> you know, story that this is some democratization of Wall Street and it's the little guy sticking it to the man, that's just that's 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 just uh, that's just baloney. And I gotta give you evidence that that's the case and and all like that. But I I think if anybody kind of thinks about it and looks at it just with a a little bit of of you know acuity here, say wait a second, this this wasn't some democratic uprising against the man. This is what Wall Street has always been, and now I think we're all seeing that for the first time. Sounds like you and I are very much on the same page as to what really happened here, Ben. But let's spell it out for our listeners. Who snowed who with what false narrative in order to get them to do what in order to benefit whom? Well, well, look, so when I say who snowed who, right, the, the truth is that a lot of ordinary people, new people to Wall Street, made good money with, with what happened with GameStop. You know, you, you, you had maybe a, a couple of thousand bucks, right? And you, you bought some, some GameStop stock or some options, and maybe you, maybe you made 10 times your money, right? Maybe, maybe you took that $2,000 and you turned it into 20, I don't know, $20,000. Well, what I would say is fantastic. Good for you. And, and, and you know, this is how markets can work, right? What I'd also say to you is that the the people who are processing your trades, I want to focus on a company that's called Citadel. Uh, it's uh, it was started by a guy named Ken Griffin. Citadel's been around a long time. They were originally and still are a big hedge fund with some tens of billions of dollars that they that they manage. But their business in recent years has changed to be what's called a market maker meaning that they they sit in the middle between the buyers and the sellers of the stock and the option, and they take a little piece from everyone who participates, right? From the buyer and the seller, they're going to take, they're going to take a few pennies, right? They're going to take maybe more than a few pennies if we're talking about options, right? We call it, you call it the, the, the bid-ask spread, and particularly in options, particularly as volatility goes up, as the price moves around a lot, the spread in these options can be can be pretty significant, right? Well, as it happens, the most popular app that's used to trade GameStop with, and I don't mean this pejoratively, retail investors is Robinhood. Robinhood famously gives you the ability to trade for free. Except there's the old saying, right? When a product is free, you are the product. And that's absolutely the case in the in, in when it comes to Robinhood. So 
Robin Hood gets paid by Citadel so that all of the traffic, all of the orders that come in and out of Robin Hood, they go through Citadel. So today, between Robinhood and some of these other brokers, I'd say, you know, or the, you know there's a story about this the, the other day in the Wall Street Journal, a little over 40% of all the retail trading activity that happens in the United States goes through Citadel, where they're taking a little piece of that. More broadly, in terms of options trading, Citadel controls are about 90% of all of that goes through Citadel. Right. So when you look at the money that Citadel makes, and, 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 and again, it's not exactly a matter of who's snowing who, right? Because the little guys, you know, and gals, you could make some money here. Last year, Citadel, not the hedge fund, just their trading business, made $6.9 billion by, with taking no risk. Citadel takes no risk. Right, they're just there taking a little piece from the flow, from the orders going back and forth. Six point nine billion dollars last year alone, more than twice as much as they had ever made in that business ever before. And that, that that wasn't until we got to January. That's I'm just talking about you know January December of of, of 2020. So when you ask kind of who benefits from this and who might have let's call it an incentive to create a story that, oh, let's go get GameStop. Let's go trade on this. Let's go trade on that. It's market makers like Citadel or or this one market maker in particular. Who else has got an incentive? It's, It's the other hedge funds who say, huh, there's a hedge fund here. And I had a guy, I, I know the guy who, is the, the the head of Melvin Capital. His name's Gabe Plotkin, and he was in a a hedge fund called SAC SAC Capital. You know, back in the day before he spun out from Stevie Cohen. That's the guy who owned uh, SAC Capital. Now owns the Mets, right? So he's been in the news around this as well. Gabe Plotkin and and Melvin Capital, who famously have this or had this enormous short bet on on GameStop. You know, that wasn't. There wasn't private information. <laughs> Everyone knew on Wall Street that they had this big position. And, and whenever you see somebody with a big position, everyone else on Wall Street is starting to think to themselves, hmm, how can I play the game to stick it to them and make a lot of money for myself? So you take those two groups together, the hedge funds, the investment groups who who, who saw this big position that – Plotkin at, at at Melvin Capital and some others had short this this crappy little stock, which GameStop is. They said, all right, how can we play this? And you put it together with the big market makers who are saying, bring it on, guys, because the more we can get this kind of retail trading action here, the more billions of dollars we can make. Those are, my opinion, uh, I'll call it the the puppet masters, let's call it, right, who are through a thousand and one different ways, trying to tell you, hey, it's just, it's, it's, it's you little guys. This is your opportunity to go beat up on a big guy when it's just other big guys who are making the real money here. That's what I think happened. Ben, I can't believe I'm saying this, but I think it's much more sinister than even you think it is. <laughs> and I, I, I agree with you that it's other hedge funds, it's Wall Street insiders, it's one percenters who orchestrated, conceived, and masterminded this. And I'll tell you exactly where they got their playbook. They got it from terrorists. And what do terrorists do? They say, you know what? If you can find young people who have been so traumatized in their lives and you can get them to feel passionately enough about a narrative that they're willing to give their own life, then even though your army is a small army, it will be an incredibly powerful army because you can have suicide bombers and you know people that do just horrible things. What happened here is one percenters said, you know what we could do? We could fill a whole bunch of retail guys' heads, people who are young millennials and, and, and Gen Z, young people who are sick of the fact that they grew up at a time in history where they're inheriting a system that they think sucks. And by the way, they're right. It does suck. And what we can do is fill their heads up with the idea that 
trust us. We know what to do. We'll pretend that we're just average guys like them, because if they know we're one percenters, they're not going to listen to us. We're going to fill their heads up with, with, with instructions on how to put a squeeze on. Now, of course, very quietly, before any of this started, those one percenters were building large long positions and option positions on GameStop. Then they went public and they said, let's do this. We the people, it's the charge. We're going to get the one percenters. They knew that the, they themselves are such sleazy, just scum on the edge of society people that so many people hated them. They could just say, hey, let's just take that energy and pretend that we're not some of them and get all these angry kids to buy GameStop in order to make sure that those one percenters who were the first in on the long side made a freaking fortune. Half of the, or less than half of the people that got sucked into this, the the pawns on, on Reddit, made 10x on, on their money or whatever because in this crazy, reckless game that they got sucked into, which is like a suicide bombing mission, take all of your life savings, buy a bunch of short-dated calls on GameStop that are either going to be blowout to the upside or they're going to expire worthless and you gave everything. And the ones that blew up, the ones that lost 100% of their savings, were bragging about it on social media saying, damn it, I don't care that I just lost all of my savings and all of my account because I was involved in the movement and I did something to stick it to those stinking one percenters and I'm proud to have lost all of my money. Meanwhile, YOLO. the guys that really <laughs> set this up, the guys that are really behind it, they're one percenters and they're the sleaziest of the one percenters. I don't know the, the Melvin Capital guy you say you know him. You know, just because he's a one percenter and a, and a hedge fund guy doesn't by itself make him a bad guy. I got to believe the real bad guys, we don't know their names. They're the ones behind these Reddit handles. No, 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 no. That's, 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 but, but, but please, I, I, I mean, <laughs> you know, if the shoe were on the other foot, Plotkin at Melvin Capital, you know, he wouldn't be shedding any tears. You know, that's what he wishes he thought of this. <laughs> no, no, trust, trust me, no friend of mine. <laughs> let, let, let me put it that way. I, what I'm just saying, though, is that this is Wall Street. This is what Wall Street has always been. You go back and look at what Wall Street was. What was the meaning of Wall Street back in any time from you know the end of the Civil War through World War II? So go through the you know the late 19th century, the early 20th century. You know guys like you know Commodore Vanderbilt, right, or or uh, Carnegie, or you know any of the ones who Jay Gould back in an earlier day, right? The guys who really were the titans of Wall Street, made their fortunes on Wall Street. Eric, this is what they did. Nobody had any conception that, oh, Wall Street is where you look for companies with a uh, good cash flow, and we'll do a discounted cash flow model, and we'll see that, well, earnings are projected to rise by you know 13% over the next two years, and so this is a company we want to buy. You would have been laughed out of the room if that had been your investment thesis in the 1920s or the 30s, even into the 1940s, no, 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 no. What Wall Street meant, and everybody knew this, was what's the story? How do we get a corner on this? What are people saying about this? How can we get a crowd to invest? And how does the crowd move the other way? And the people who made these great fortunes, the robber barons of Wall Street, are exactly like the Gabe Plotkins and the Stevie Cohens of today, right? As, as the old expression goes, they'd sell their mother for an eighth. And the whole game here is how to create a story and a mechanism to play essentially a zero-sum game where we are taking the money from someone else. And if we can take it from a lot of people so that they don't even notice that we're taking the money from them, all the better, but we're going to make some money here. Okay, but Ben, here's what I really want to ask you about this, because what just happened, okay, what just happened, a few one percenters orchestrated this whole thing. A whole bunch of millennials and Gen Zers just lost everything. And you know what? They're not even mad about it because they're proud that they were part of the movement. What happens 
when they wake up. They either listen to this podcast, eventually this is going to come out. When they figure out that they were played by a different group of one percenters, those guys made a killing. It was a sure bet for them. In order to make that happen, they needed a bunch of suicide bombers, and they played these young kids, and they lost everything. What happens when they wake up and figure that out? Then what happens? What do you mean, figure it out, Eric? I mean, there, 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 there are also going to be lots of stories of, of, you know, God knows you don't have to read very far. What's the guy, you know, who had the, the GameStop idea and he made you like $20 million and, 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 and you'll have plenty of stories of people who made a ton of money. And those stories will be true. Those stories will be true, Eric. There's plenty of money to go around when you execute a play like this. But what about the larger number of stories of people that lost 100% because they were played? Uh, and it was actually uh, one percenters who played. I haven't them. seen a lot of those stories, Eric. I'm just telling you, I haven't seen a lot. It doesn't mean we're not going to, right? And I don't know what the reaction is. But here's what I think the reaction is going to be, Eric. The reaction is going to be, it's the old story about, you know, why do you keep playing poker in this, this Old West saloon? Why do you keep playing poker, guys, when you know you're being cheated? And the answer is, it's the only game in town. Where else are you going to find a chance, Eric, to, you know, to maybe make 10 times your money? What, you're going to, you're going to put that money into a mutual fund, right, for the next 20 years? Really? No. No, you're not. You're going to say, all right, they got me that time. This time, though, I'm going to believe, <laughs> I'm going to believe this story, or this, this is the way that I'm going to, to, to make a lot of money. Once you get the bug, Eric, once you become the, revolutionary right once you believe you don't stop believing man that's just not the way human nature works that's true in politics and it's true in marketing once you're a believer once you're a true believer once you give these bastards your heart and you take their their line hook line and sinker sorry Eric, they got you man they got you and it is it, it's not just a one-time deal where people kind of wake up and get deprogrammed Unfortunately, you got to get hit around. You got to get hit on the head with that two by four, I think, a couple of times. And, and that's what I think is going to happen here. And of course, we could solve all of this with decentralized finance that's cleared on a ledger so that everybody has transparency and knows what really happened. But the problem is that nobody in the market, nobody who, who's in Wall Street, has an incentive to make the market better because, as this example so perfectly illustrates, they can make so much more money exploiting the fact that our market systems were designed decades ago and need to be improved. Nobody wants to fix them because they can make so much more. I'm telling you, Eric, Citadel, $6.9 billion And they are in year. the business of last celebrating year. the fact that the market is designed like crap. Their systems are some of the best in the world. But they don't want to fix the market. They want to keep it broken. Because if the market was fixed, then they wouldn't be able to make money doing what they do. You, you got that right, Eric. $6.9 billion, one year, zero risk, just standing in the middle and taking their pennies from the flow that goes by. Well, I have a prediction that one of these days, these young kids are not stupid. They're going to figure out that they were played, and I think it just exacerbates the class warfare and, to some extent, the generation warfare that, unfortunately, is accelerating in the United States. I, I hope to be wrong about that. I hope you're wrong, but I, I, I think you're probably right as well. I want to move on now, Ben, to another major topic that you've had a lot to say on, which is the role of financial markets in serving society like utilities, or that's what they should do. We've kind of had this metamorphosis since Reg NMS was passed, where financial markets have become for-profit businesses. Normally, that's a good thing. For-profit businesses tend to work more efficiently than government-controlled uh, utilities. But boy, in this case, it seems that the high-frequency traders that uh, that provide so much revenue to the exchanges have kind of captured control of the system and how the exchanges themselves work is being determined by the best healed customers that are maybe not the same people that those financial exchanges were first designed to serve in the first place. Uh, tell us how we should think about this change that's occurring, where it's headed and where it should it be headed. What should we do to get it under control? Yeah. I I, th I think it's uh, first of all we I think we we should be careful about kind of how 
we can use the same word to mean different things in different contexts, and, and, and a utility is, is, is one of them. And we can think of utility as like an electrical utility, right? That, that, that that's something where, and, and frankly, this gets right back to that point about what happens when you grant a, a, a monopoly charter to a a company, a business organization in some 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 field. So, you know, it's you can't have five different electrical generation utilities serving the same area, right? That that doesn't work for any of them. You just you just won't get electricity into your area if you're saying, well, you could spend all this money to lay the 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 wiring and build the the power generation plant and all like that. But then uh, you know, free enterprise man, somebody else could 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 come in and either lay wire themselves or, you know, try to, to hook into to your wiring and it, it just doesn't work, right? I, I mean, these big capital intensive things like generating electricity, what we've decided as a society is okay, we're gonna give a monopoly. There's only gonna be one power generation company. In, in your geographical area, but in exchange for that, in exchange for being a monopoly and having monopoly power to set prices and all like that, there's going to be a lot of government control. And that's the same thing we did with uh, cable companies back in the early days, right? It doesn't make sense for more than one company to lay the, the cable for television cable. So uh, we're going to give you kind of that effective charter or monopoly over that area. And you're going to let us have control over how you could raise prices and other business activities you can do. So that's that's kind of been the idea of, of a utility and that it, it's giving you a monopoly and that you can, you know, you'll have this control over it. But then we have the idea, well, you know, what about having truly for-profit utilities, right? Why don't we, we deregulate these utilities and let them do as they will? Right. Well, and if somebody wants to come in and compete, that's great. But, you know, yay, free enterprise, we're going to deregulate these utilities and let them do what they want. What do we get out of that? We get utilities like you you have out in, in, in California, uh, like you have here in Connecticut, for-profit utilities that are providing, uh, you know, setting a stage for, for, for real disasters, whether it's, it's, it's fires out in, in, in California or whether it's you know the problems we're having with our infrastructure here here in Connecticut after a storm you know we we we've moved in this direction this deregulatory direction i'd say in almost every aspect of our of our lives we've certainly done it with uh power utilities we've done it with uh healthcare in terms of the healthcare insurance business where these have been deregulated and privatized as well but they still have effective monopolies on the lives that they insure or that they cover. And we've done this with financial markets as well, right? We've moved from these institutions that were essentially regulated utilities. They could make money, they had management, but they were under an environment where there were significant regulatory controls over what they could do and how they could do it. And by deregulating them, we've moved to an environment where they are, you know, these privately owned exchanges, and they're going to do what privately owned companies do. They're going to try to make more money for their shareholders, for their management teams, even if it comes at the expense of the public good which they provide, which only they can provide. So in all of these different cases, right, whether it's technology and media, whether it's power generation, whether it's healthcare insurers, whether it is financial market exchanges, this push towards deregulation without creating the conditions that breaks up their natural monopoly status leads us to where we are. So I think you can attack this in one of two directions, right? You can either re-regulate them or you can create conditions that breaks up their effective monopoly power. I think those are the two directions you can go. And everything we've been talking about for media and big tech applies just as much to financial markets and the, and the way that they're 
public mission, the public good that only they can provide, has been subverted over the last 20, 30 years. Well, Ben, we're in violent agreement on many aspects of this. The problem that I have is I just don't see any clean solutions. And what I mean by that is I couldn't agree more that that the situation we have is that markets are supposed to exist to serve society. The whole idea is to promote the efficient formation of capital so that you can provide the expansion capital businesses need in order to be able to employ more people, create more prosperity for society. It's supposed to all do good in the world. And it's been it's been shanghaied somehow as a result of the privatization of exchanges to where you know they'll sell their souls to to provide co-location services to HFTs because there's so much profit for their shareholders in it and they're not doing anything wrong you know if you're running a a for-profit company doing things that maximize the revenue to your shareholders is your job it's your fiduciary duty it's not just something you can do it's something you're required to do but it undermines the purposes for which these things exist now here's my real big problem and i have no idea what the solution is I think we are at the cusp of one of the most important times in the history of financial markets because we urgently need to embrace DeFi, decentralized finance. We need to figure out how to modernize and tokenize all of these financial markets, embrace distributed ledger technology, do all kinds of really cutting edge things that there's no way government utility overseers could ever, ever get right. That's just not going to happen. You need the creativity and the ingenuity that only the private sector can deliver. But boy, if you incentivize the private sector to do the best for its shareholders, it's going to continue to do what it has been doing, which is to not serve society and only to serve the special interests of the the most well-heeled customers of those exchanges like HFTs who can afford to pay ridiculous fees for co-location of their servers and so forth, as opposed to making the markets themselves serve society better. So my question, Ben, is how do we tap the creative ingenuity that's only possible through entrepreneurship and private sector, but somehow change the the motivation so that they're going to want to do the right thing to make the market serve all market participants better, not just the HFTs and whoever else can afford to pay the most fees? You know, like you, Eric, I, I, I share your enthusiasm for that vision that you laid out. But also like you, I don't think it's possible to get there from here. And I don't think it's possible to get there from here because what you lose, and you, and you look, you see this in DeFi right now, at least in the crypto space, where it is, you know, to call it the Wild West would be to ascribe, you know, a lot more, you know, a, a false sense of, of of calm and orderliness to it, right? I mean, it's it's the Wild West Squared, right? Right. And and by Wild West, I mean that there are no protections. There are no protections in crypto DeFi. There's an enormous amount, as you put out, of of, of creativity, of intellectual horsepower, of 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 cool stuff coming up. And the and the ultimate game here, right, to create a financial system that is decentralized that works on rules that can't be subverted or chronified or that that has a transparency and a purpose that certainly you know the 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 small l liberal in me just 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 really wants to cheer the problem is 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 it gets it's so easy for that to get to to get co-opted by people who will cheat chisel steal accidentally screw something up, on purpose screw something up, so that you lose your money and there's no protection for it. So that you get robbed, basically. And so you're you're asking trying to kind of to square a circle. How can we provide government in there to be the the policeman, right? The 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 marshal in that old West town that prevents people from getting robbed at gunpoint and yet still allows the creation of a decentralized system that at its core rejects the notion of that central cop 
right? That that that, that gov- for government to play that role. I I don't know how to square that circle. The only thing I can think to do is, I can think of two things to do. You have to find local areas of trust where 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 actually you can use distributed ledger decentralized systems to slowly over time expand that circle of trust right but 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 to start small to do it on a very small scale with these closed environments where you can make something like that work the other approach, though, is is you know to say, all right, well, the DeFi, we're we're not going to be able to build that from the ground up. We have to get back to some notions of government playing that regulatory role in the legacy system that we have today. So I I share your vision and the excitement at the vision. I don't see how we can do it in a big bang sort of way. I don't even see the path, frankly from this enormous edifice that we've built up today to that vision you're describing, all I can hope to see is to try to find small, closed environments where you can build these sort of decentralized systems with enough existing trust so that you don't need that, or you can you can make it work and you can give time to build out the system without having some you know, thief come in and just blow it all up. And at the same time, working at the big legacy systems to try to impose some notion of re-regulation to prevent the rapacious financialization that I see happening, again, not just in financial markets, but in big tech and media, healthcare insurance, classical you know, energy utilities as well. You see it everywhere these days. So that's the best I can come up with. You got to start with the small and attack it from the big, but I, I don't see how you match the, that there's any path right now to connect the two. Well, I can't let go of this one, Ben, and I agree with you that it's, <laughs> it, it, you know, but think about it. Stop it and consider. If you did it right, you could use this technology which has emerged to create a new generation global financial system where there's digital currencies, probably more than one, which are, you know, digital bearer instruments that that are tokenized units of currency, that all assets, whether it's real estate, whether it's stocks, bonds, commodity, futures, you know, whatever, you're transacting everything using this instantaneous clearing and settlement. There are no middlemen. There are no brokers. You don't have to worry about settlement and clearing because those concepts don't even exist anymore. Everything is instantaneous, and it's inherently orders of magnitude safer than the old system. You and I both know it is technologically possible with these new inventions that exist now to create that outcome except for this one tiny little problem, which is all of the people who are smart enough to know how to build what I just described will have plenty of opportunities to instead build Ponzi schemes and other things that just take advantage of everybody and separate them from their money very quickly and make them rich so they go away and live in South America. I mean, look, the the reason I think one of the main reasons that the United States has had such a position of leadership in the world is because its financial market systems were dramatically superior to everything else in the world for the last hundred years or so. Now we're getting to this point where that advantage, I think, is going away. And at the same time, you've got a very clear path technologically to what needs to happen. But the people that are smart enough to build it are incentivized not to do so. In fact, the longer that they keep the old broken system in place so that they can build quant hedge funds to exploit those inefficiencies in the old system, the better it is for them. So they're motivated not only to not fix it, but to keep it broken. We got to figure out a way to get out of that conundrum. It seems to me that is the whole future of finance. Honestly, Eric, I'm I'm, I'm going to stick with my my view here. I I, I don't think that there is a top down campaign that one can wage to change human nature in that regard. I think the best that we can do, and it's a very long game and it's frustrating and it's tiring and it's two steps forward and one step back, but is to find small areas, really closed systems where you can implement 
a financial exchange like that. Because once you start touching, you know, the third rail, which is the U.S. dollar and seniorage and 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 the like, you don't you don't ever recover from that either from either from fear or from greed. You don't you don't ever recover from that. And, and so what I think you have to build up is is an alternative private small system you have to make that work you have to to lead by example of making that work for a community of people do that just do that and it'll take years maybe decades right but i think all these good things they can only come from that bottom up approach that that trying to impose this from the top down i don't see the path I just don't. How do we advance financial markets then? Because you you, know, you said the, the third rail of the U.S. dollar. Look, the U.S. dollar has, has stayed the world's reserve currency for as long as it has, for one reason only, as far as I'm concerned, which is there is no viable alternative. Lots of people around the world are getting more and more motivated to try to figure out a viable alternative. We've got uh, several different countries, central banks, engineering CBDC, central bank digital currency systems. Presumably, one of their motivations is to vie for that position of global dominance, of asserting their digital currency as the replacement for the dollar, as the world's global reserve currency. We're going to continue to see innovation. How do we get that innovation? I mean, it's, it, it seems to me like we cannot advance financial markets until we figure out this motivation problem of getting people to want to make the system better. Honestly, Eric, I don't really care so much about financial innovation. And I know that sounds incendiary. What I mean by that is this. Financial innovation throughout human history has been of, of for one of two purposes. It's either been a new way to securitize something, or it's been a new way to apply leverage. All financial innovation has been for those two goals, right? Leverage or securitization. That's a great way to make money. And so, and so that's why you get the best and brightest minds that are always focused on new ways to securitize, new ways to apply leverage. Government, the reason this, that governments exist is to control money, to control that financial system. That is what governments do. That is what they are for. That is Caesar. You know, when Jesus says, render unto Caesar that which is Caesar's, he's talking about money. And so I I don't get so consumed with trying to figure out better ways to do financial innovation, to find better ways to securitize or to apply leverage, because in my view, it is always and in all ways subsumed by government, subsumed by that centralized authority. And that efforts to create this 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 I don't even know what you what you call it system that exists away from governments. I think either it's it's it can't succeed if you ever want to use that financial instrument to actually buy something to use it as a financial instrument, or it's being used as a stalking horse by another government that just wants to be that dominant player. Right. It's you're 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 either being kind of a stooge for whether it's, I don't know, the Chinese or whoever who would like to have an alternative to the dollar system, or you're you're setting yourself up for a place where, oh, I'm I I, I have to learn which countries don't have extradition treaties, <laughs> you know, with the United States. And and neither one of those is is a playing field that I particularly want to be on. So I Look, I, I hear you about, you know, improving settlement and, and, and making for a system that is, is, is quicker and, uh, and the like, but I'd kind of want to step back for a second and say, well, is that really where we want best and brightest minds to be applying themselves? Is that really the, what we mean by such an important focus of, of, of innovation? Or is it just a way to, 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 to make some money? So. I get I get frustrated with efforts to create a different market system as if that is somehow separate from or not connected to 
the two age-old questions of, of, of financial innovation, which is how to securitize something and how to apply more leverage. Well, I'm talking about disintermediation and elimination of counterparty risk and providing surety of transactional completeness, that, that I can buy something, I don't have to worry about it settling or, or the broker defaulting or, okay. or you know. All right, no, but the thing is, stuff. There, there's a lot of technology that's on the immediate horizon. It either exists now or it's coming very soon to do all kinds of advancement. And I think we could make the financial systems so much better than they are that we would have, call it a, a renaissance of the era around the Industrial Revolution where the United States excelled so much because its capital markets were able to create the public companies that created so much employment and prosperity and so forth. The funding mechanisms for that efficient formation of capital were better in the United States than they were in the rest of the world, and that directly made the country much more prosperous. I think there's opportunity with decentralized finance to have a whole new round of that. But the problem is nobody is personally motivated to go and build it because if they're smart enough to do that, they can make more money exploiting the deficiencies that they see in the design of current systems than they can by fixing them. Until we can figure out some magic pill to fix that misalignment of incentives and motivation, then I agree with you. I don't see how we can get there. But boy, what a horrible thing to let go to waste. The opportunity to make financial markets better, safer, more reliable than they are today, and better serve society. I, I'm not willing to let go of that. And I do admit that it's very hard to see the path to get there because you can't solve this motivation problem. Yeah. So I, I'll keep coming back to this. I, I think you can't. It's, it's, it's one of these things where if you seek out to try to boil the ocean, you're you're never going to even get close. I, I, I really do think that the, the, the power of example, the power of starting small, finding closed systems where you can implement this is, is the key to providing the, the sort of – because you know how a crystal grows, right? I, I mean, a crystal starts with a seed. And, and, I, and I do think that if you can find that application in a closed system where you're not competing against – Caesar and his emissaries, right? But where you you can find that environment to do a closed system that has these decentralized systems. I think that's where you start, Eric. I really do. That you really have to think almost crazily small if you're going to figure out something that can get big. So you're saying that it needs to be built incrementally, but still, even if you want to start small, how do you get the incentive? If I wanted to start small today, what I would do is take a small stab at what's best for me, which is to exploit the inefficiencies of the system, not to fix them. No, 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 no. That's, that's, I don't mean starting small in the sense of entrepreneurial. What I mean is starting small in the sense of finding a... Find a commune somewhere, Eric. I, I, I mean, I'm really serious, right? So find find a community where you've got an element of trust that's already been established. So you have essentially a system outside of the system you're building to establish trust and have some confidence that nobody's there just to to, to screw everybody else in the in in that community. It could be a ten dollar word epistemic community, right? A community that of you know, you share some passion that you, you know, you've got your, your Facebook, your social media group that does, I don't know, collectible. Oh, come on, we have to be on Facebook American now? <laughs> tinware. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no. But I, I give you an example, right? It, it doesn't have to be a, a community as in, oh, we've got these 30 people who live out on this, you know, this farm somewhere. It could be, you know, 300 people who know each other because they, 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 they have a shared passion that they, you know, talk about on social media, but they live all over the place. Set up a financial system, right? And this has been done for eons, eons. These private, this is how private banks started. It's uh, uh, Then it was, a you know, a rich guy and his bunch of his friends got together or a small group of his friends got together and says, we're going to provide a, a private bank for us. This is our bank. This is our financial system. What I'm talking about doing that is not with a rich guy and his buddies, but the buddies within one of these communities build something there 
build something there in a in a community that's small. It, it's not trying to be for everyone or be for thousands of people. It's just trying to be for your pack. Right? That's how I think these things can start. That's what I mean by 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 building crystals that that are fully formed. Right? I'm not saying you buy, you start small as in, oh, I want to b- make this one little piece and then I'll build more later. No, you're building the whole thing, but it's on a small scale for a small group that have external measures of enforcing trust within that group, that, that know each other, right? That, that trust each other. And then from that small crystal, that kernel, then you can start to grow it over time. Well, we've done exactly done exactly that. The Smarter Markets podcast is exactly the commune that you're talking about. And it started you with, uh, you know, I invested in this little company, Abex Technologies, that's going to tokenize commodity futures markets, which is what I trade all day long. And I see the opportunities there. We put this Smarter Markets podcast together because we want to do exactly that. We want to get a community of people within finance who can see what we need to get to is we need to get to smarter markets, markets that embrace technology. But that means at least some of the people in this whole ecosystem have to be satisfied with the modest amount of profit that is available by building better, smarter market systems that better serve society. And yeah, you could you could make more money by using those same technical expertise to go design a quant edge fund that exploits the inefficiencies of the existing system because there's more money in that. But you know, I'm very proud to be investing with guys that are building markets that are going to actually make the market ecosystem better. And I I think we're going to build that community through this very podcast. That's my prediction. I love it. I love it. You don't have to appeal to everyone, Eric, but the people you appeal to they need to share your passion and that and that goal. And it's a big world out there. This this is this is why I write Epsilon Theory. This is why I started this whole project eight years ago, was exactly what you're saying. Build a community of like-minded truth seekers from all over the world. And you start from the bottom up with this sort of motivated group who who, who shares the same goals and, and, and aspirations. I'm telling you, Eric, that's how the world changes. It really is. It doesn't change from the top down. It changes from the bottom up by finding your pack, finding that community of like-minded people, and then going out and getting to work. That's how the world changes, man. Well, my commune for this particular mission is Smarter Markets, but I want to close on your community for that, which is Epsilon Theory. Before we close, tell our listeners what you do at Epsilon Theory and how they can find out more about it. Sure. Well, I'll, I'll start with the second part last. Uh, Epsilon Theory is EpsilonTheory.com. I'm at Epsilon Theory on, on Twitter. You know, so long as Twitter exists, I'll be out there as well. But uh, I'm all Epsilon Theory all the time. What we do, we do two things. We do research on narratives uh, called natural language processing, trying to understand the science behind how these messages that impact our behavior, how they're formed and how they how they grab us, uh, and then we write about it. So under that Epsilon Theory brand, so we uh, we're all research and we're all writing all the time about narratives. Ben, thanks so much for a terrific interview. Listeners, next week we'll be launching a four part mini series on ESG investing, starting with Peter Fusaro, veteran ESG investor and founder of the Wall Street Green Summit. We'll discuss all things green and get Peter's take on where the industry stands in its adoption of ESG and where it's headed. That's coming up next week on Smarter Markets. Listeners, please help us get the word out about Smarter Markets. It's not every day you come across a podcast with guests on the caliber that you've heard here on Smarter Markets. And we have a veritable who's who of industry legends lined up for interviews in coming weeks. Your ratings and reviews on Apple Podcasts and other podcast platforms mean the world to us, as does your help spreading the word about Smarter Markets via word of mouth. For the Macro Voices Podcast Network, I'm Eric Townsend. See you again next week for another installment of Smarter Markets.
That concludes this week's episode of Smarter Markets. For free episode transcripts, visit smartermarketspod.com. Smarter Markets is 100% listener-driven, so please help more people discover the podcast by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast platform. Smarter Markets is presented for informational and entertainment purposes only. The information presented on Smarter Markets should not be construed as investment advice. Always consult a licensed investment professional before making investment decisions. The views and opinions expressed on Smarter Markets are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of the show's hosts or sponsors. Smarter Markets, its producers, sponsors, and hosts, Eric Townsend and Abex Technologies, shall not be liable for losses resulting from investment decisions based on information or viewpoints presented on Smarter Markets.